Hello and welcome to Hell No, a true crime podcast with your host, Lauren Lucio. I want to make an amendment for last week's episode, um, the James Bulger case, where I said Denise's book was titled Let Him Go, but it's actually I Let Him Go. I I forgot the I in front of Let Him Go. Wow, that case was a rough one. I had to watch a lot of Gilmore Girls to reset my brain after that. You know, sometimes I dream I live in Stars Hollow, specifically in the fall and in the winter because it just looks so nice there. If I have any Gilmore Girl fans listening, I've got a question for you actually and I'm gonna post a picture on the Hell No Instagram account and then you can comment your answer underneath of it. And my question is, if you lived in Stars Hollow, what would your job be? Would you work in Luke's Diner? Would you work in Babette's dance studio? Would you work in Lorelei's Inn? Or would you open a completely new business? I want to know, what would that business be? What would your job be? What would you do if you lived in Stars Hollow? What would your role be? For me, for some reason, I see myself working in a bakery. I don't know why. It seems warm. It seems wholesome. I love it. Get up early, baking bread, drinking coffee. I just, it sounds great. Or... A portraits photography studio. I, you know, you never really see a Stars Hollow portrait photographer. I don't know if maybe Kurt did it once. He seems to do everything at least once. But um, yeah, that's my answer. So just go head on over to the Hell No Insta. You'll know the picture I'm talking about. It'll be a picture of Stars Hollow or something like that. Comment underneath. One more thing I would like to say before I get into this week's case. Sorry, I feel like I'm really waffling on this week. But I've noticed in my analytics, I have increased my audience. And I would like to thank and welcome my new listeners. I know for sure my friend from college, Stacy, is listening. And I would like to personally thank her for sharing my podcast with her friends. It really means a lot to me to have that support. So thank you so much, Stacey. And thank you to all of her friends that took her recommendation on and are listening as well. Thank you and welcome. Okay, let's get into this week's case. This week's case, it it's not really a mystery, I will say, as you can probably piece it together quite quickly. It wasn't committed by the smartest criminals. Let's just say that. Within the first five minutes of the Forensic Files episode I watched on it, I was yelling, okay, Brenda, this is obvious. And you're going to find out who Brenda is in like a minute. This episode begins in Oklahoma, USA in 1984, the year that 21-year-old Brenda married a man named Rob Andrew. They had met a few years earlier. I think he was he was just a couple years older than her, not by much. He was in college. I think she was in high school when they met, but then she graduated. Blah, 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 back and forth. They ended up getting married. So 1984, they get married. But soon after this, Brenda, like soon, soon after this, like very soon after this, Brenda realized maybe she shouldn't have married Rob. Like she was already feeling regretful of her decision to say yes to the dress. Because after the honeymoon, I think it was after the honeymoon, Brenda told Rob she regretted marrying him. Damn, Brenda, you have the whole, you just made a commitment to spend the rest of your life with this man. You're with him for less than a month and you're telling him that you regret what you did. Sheesh. Brenda and Rob, they were both very committed to Christianity. They were very religious. In and, and maybe that's why divorce wasn't in the books at this point. Um, they both attended church every week. Brenda was actually a Sunday school teacher and Rob did missionary work in South America. It's not like they just attended church every week and gave a donation. Like they gave a lot of themselves to the church. They were devout Christians. And that's the way that Brenda had grown up her whole life. As a child, her family was extremely devoted to Christianity. And she is as as an adult, she's never known anything else. This She is committed to her faith and so is Rob. By December of 1990, they had a child. So even though Brenda regretted marrying Rob immediately, it seems like they were toiling through it. Rob seemed to really love and care for Brenda, but Brenda, 
she didn't seem to feel or act the same way towards Rob. Their relationship is even described as unbalanced. Then four years after their first child was born, they have another child. By this point, they had been married for 10 years, um, which I couldn't imagine that went by fast for Brenda or Rob. Rob and Brenda, they had actually separated for a little while before their first child was born. It was for less than a year, but they had gotten married in Oklahoma. Rob got a job in Texas, so they moved there. And Brenda also found work in Texas and she was loving it. She had friends, she had a job, she loved it. But then Rob, not long after, got offered another uh, another job back in Oklahoma where they just moved from a pretty high paying job um, as an ad executive and, and he took it and Brenda was mad because she didn't want to leave Texas she didn't want to leave her friend she didn't want to leave her job she had just moved there started from scratch built up a life that she was loving and she didn't want to be taken away from it so that's when they separated the first time because he moved back to Oklahoma. She stayed in Texas. But for some reason, perhaps because Rob was making bank, Brenda decided to get back with him and she moved back to Oklahoma. Then before you know it, they have two kids together. But Brenda was starting to discover her sexuality and was wanting to explore that world. As I was saying, Brenda's entire life had been devoted to Christianity, even as a child. She had lived on that straight and narrow. She had praised Jesus. She had done everything according to the way that her church thinks that she should live her life. She's a very good girl. But something switched in her. Three years after their second child was born, Brenda started to have affairs. She started to be a wild woman. Brenda had previously worked at a bank before she became a full-time mother. And at the bank, she befriended a woman. And then in 1996, she had an affair with that woman's husband that lasted more than a few months until eventually it fizzled out. But then in 1999, Brenda had another affair, again to a married man. This guy worked at the grocery store, and that's where Brenda would often run into him. And she liked what she saw. And she decided she wasn't going to let her or his wedding ring stop them from sleeping together. In a bold mood one day, Brenda went to the grocery store. And she had, must have been feeling confident as hell because she handed him a key. But what kind of key was it, you ask? Good question. Well, the key unlocketh a hotel room door that she had rented. She hands him the key and tells him to meet her there. And this must have been before true crime was, you know, very popular and well known as today because he actually goes, Today, I feel like someone would be like, I am not being lured into a hotel room alone with a stranger. I just feel like people don't do that anymore. Anyways, this is the 90s. It wasn't, it wasn't a murder plot. <laughs> it turned out Brenda wasn't plotting this grocer's murder. She just wanted to have sex with him. So they ended up getting into an affair. Yes, he does go to the hotel room. I'm assuming they slept together. I don't know. But that affair lasted until 2001. But Brenda, being Brenda and looking for excitement, not another boring, stale relationship. So they've been having this affair for a while. She's getting bored. She tells this guy that she isn't having fun anymore. I'm not having fun anymore. That's what she tells him. And she breaks it off with him. And he's like, okay, buddy, you dodged a bullet. Let's just say that. Okay. My guess is she was searching for a new affair. So she, that one got bored. She was like, yikes, I can't have a husband and an affair and then another affair. That's a lot of work. I got to ditch my stale affair. I want to find a new one. So she was looking to spice things up, make it exciting again. In her next affair, she was also looking for something a little more, maybe something she could make gains from. And I say this because not long after her affair with the grocer ended, she started a new affair. But this time with a man who her husband knew well. Not only knew him, but 
was his life insurance salesman, James Pavat. Welcome to the story, James. James had recently assisted Rob in taking out an $800,000 life insurance policy. Rob and James, they were friends even. And James was also a friend of the family. He had been to their house. He had played with their children. And he, he had, you know, he had spent time in their family home. Brenda and James had even taught the same Sunday school. As James was also a man of faith as well. He attended that church too. He was a devoted Christian as well. And he was also, what? Married. We got three affairs, three married men. Brenda, Brenda, Brenda. Not long after Rob had set up his life insurance policy and named Brenda the only beneficiary was when her and James started their affair. That's right. The man who was in charge of the insurance policy and the woman who would benefit in the event of a payout were now having a secret affair. I wonder what could go wrong here. What are we going to see here? Brenda and James seemed to give no fucks, zero fucks given about hiding their affair, actually. So it wasn't that secret. Not just from Rob, uh, not from the community, and not even from the church. I'm not exactly sure what Brenda and Rob were doing to draw attention to themselves when they were teaching Sunday school together or... I don't, I'm not sure if they were teaching it together or if maybe they were on like rotational weeks. I'm not really sure how that was or what they were doing in and outside of church. Well, we know what they were doing outside of church, but it was enough for them to be asked by the church to not come back to teach Sunday school. Perhaps members of the church had seen Brenda and James out on their dates because that's right, they were seen going out to dinner together. They didn't give a fuck. This community wasn't even that big. And they're like, I know, let's go out to dinner together. Like who knows how many restaurants this town has, but there they were having a feast and an affair for the whole town to see. And also, some people said that even after church, they were seen just getting way too close this as i said it seems to be a small town um so people were seeing it people were talking wasn't long before rob was catching wind of this rob ended up confronting brenda about the affair but she wasn't having any of it from rob she continued to have her affair and she kicked rob out of their family home she changed the lock she took his keys and she filed for divorce This woman is just doing whatever the hell she wants and nobody can seem to stop her. Rob is devastated. He doesn't want his marriage to end. He wants to be with his children. He wants his family to stay together. He wants to work things out and he loves Brenda, but she's just ice queen. She's just icing him. She's like, see you later. Get away from the kids. Out of the house. Give me your keys. Bye bye. By this time, their children were 7 and 11 years old, and Brenda didn't want Rob to have any access to them. She didn't want him to have them overnight. She didn't want him to visit them. She didn't want him to see them at all, it seemed. This makes for a very messy divorce, as you can imagine. I never understand this in situations. As far as it goes with everything I read, Rob was a respectable parent. There was never any mentions of abuse or violence or addictions. He was just making quite a bit of money. He was quite successful. He was a very calm, loving, church-going man. He was—he just seemed to be a good person. But Brenda, she was so verbally abusive to Rob. She would tell him she hated him and she would just leave him like really mean patronizing voicemails about being a bad father and stuff like that. Just nasty immature stuff. She, I, I, I heard one of these recordings actually on the, I believe it was the Forensic Files episode I watched, which I will link in my show notes. And um, she sounds like a 16 year old girl, by the way, she's talking to him and what she's saying. She was also telling her friends, <laughs> this, this also made me be like, Brenda, 
what the fuck are you doing? She was also telling her friends that she wished Rob was dead. So again, Brenda, subtlety, not your forte, girl. James Pavat, he had also divorced his wife around this time as well. One day, Rob notices something weird with his car. By weird, I mean the brakes wouldn't work. It's pretty pretty weird. And he could see that the brake lines had been cut. Yeah, I'd say that's pretty fucking weird. But it only gets weirder. While at the dealership, he calls 911 and says his brake lines have been cut. And the operator in the 911 call, she goes, oh. <laughs> he goes, yeah, my brake lines have been cut. And then the operator, oh, or something. It's, it's funny. Um, and Rob tells her that he thinks it's attempted murder. He's like, this, you know, this really looks like attempted murder to me. Wouldn't you say? Like he immediately is like, brake lines don't cut themselves. Somebody cut my brake line. Someone wants me dead. But who, I wonder. So the dispatcher sends, poli- sends a police officer to the dealership to take a statement from Rob. And he tells the officer... He thinks it was Brenda and James who cut his brake lines. But unfortunately, the officer, he couldn't really do anything without proof, such as video footage of them doing it, caught red-handed, whatever. So it was just documented, but nothing came from this report. This is what bothers me. We see this in so many cases. Someone suspects someone is trying to kill them. They tell the police about it. Nothing happens. The only thing that is good for this. The only thing that this is good for is when you file this report saying someone's trying to kill me, the only thing that that is good for is after you're dead and they have their report to look back on and say, oh yeah, they were right. Someone was trying to kill them and we have their names. They did our job for us. Thank you. Very rarely does it actually prevent a murder. Same with restraining orders. Those things seem to be bullshit the more I get into true crime the more I read about restraining orders the more I'm just like these are bullshit the only thing a restraining order is good for is that if the person violates them then they have grounds for arrest which that's actually pretty good but a restraining order doesn't actually keep somebody away from you it offers you no protection at all only when the person violates it and then they can be held for it depends it, it depends on, on how long, whether they spend a lot of time in prison for it or they go to jail for it or whatever happens. I don't know, but restraining orders, man, they don't even really work. But we haven't got to the weirder part yet. Later that day, Rob gets a voicemail when he gets to work. So he's been at the dealership all morning. His brake lines have been cut. He reported it to police. He makes it to work. He has a voicemail. He listens to the voicemail saying that it's the hospital and his wife Brenda has been brought into the hospital as she's had some kind of accident and he should hurry over. Hmm, hurry over. He should rush over. That The same morning his brake lines have been cut, he gets a voicemail saying, you need to get in your car and rush right over really fast on the highway. What a crazy coincidence that the day his brake lines are cut, he receives a call telling him, to rush to an urgent situation in his car on the highway. Rob goes to the hospital in his rental car. He's no dummy. He's got a rental car. His brakes are getting fixed. His lines are getting put back together. Whatever they do. Replace lines. I don't know. But so he's in a rental car and he goes to the hospital. And he's told that Brenda's not there. In fact, she never was there. And he realizes it was a lie to get him to speed down the highway in a brakeless car. So Rob, he really realizes what's happening. He's like, oh God, I know what's happening. She wants my life insurance money um, and she wants the kids and she doesn't want to deal with me anymore. So he goes and he tries to change his life insurance beneficiary to somebody in his family so that if anything did happen to him, he could be sure his children would be looked after. I believe it was his brother he changed it to. But we all know who has access to that insurance policy. That's right. That's right. Brenda's lover, James. The man who sold Rob the policy in the first place. James tells Rob, you can't change it. And Rob was like, well, why? Why? Why, James? Why? And James, I, I, I don't even know the reason he gave him, but he was like, you can't change it because blah, 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 X, Y, Z. And Rob was like, okay, liar. So he goes over top of James. He goes to the head office and he goes through uh, people who are above James to change this. So he does end up changing it to his brother. 
Could you imagine how it would feel to be Rob in this situation? To be so sure your wife is trying to murder you for insurance money and then you try to change the policy and the man who is sleeping with your wife tells you, no, sorry, bye. You can't change it. Bye-bye. It's like, he must have been in a nightmare. Like this would have been totally crazy for him to live in this reality. Not only that, but Rob went back to police and even filed a report stating what he believed was happening. And police did nothing. He was very detailed. He gave names. He gave motive. Basically handing police an investigation on a silver platter. But this is such a weird situation because what could they actually do until they had grounds for arrest? They couldn't prove that it was them who cut the brake lines. They couldn't prove that they were trying to make him rush to the hospital. They couldn't prove that he couldn't change the beneficiary. There was just... I don't know why there wasn't an attempted murder case, why they couldn't, I don't know, something, fingerprints, come on people, there must be CCTV of those brake lines getting cut, anything, but no, the police, they, I don't know if they were being lazy on this, or if they didn't believe him, or if they actually didn't have enough proof, but the only thing that I can think of that police could have done was maybe confronted Brenda and James and told them, hey, if you're planning to murder Rob, uh, I'm not saying you are. I'm just saying if that's what you're planning, then you shouldn't because you should know you will absolutely be the first people we question because we have tons of evidence pointing towards you already and nothing's even happened yet. Not saying anything will happen, but just letting you know. You would think maybe Brenda and James would be like, "Mm, maybe we shouldn't try to kill Rob because there's a mountain of evidence already pointing towards us. You would think, but who knows? Anyways, back to it. Thanksgiving weekend rolls around and we all know it's kind of a big deal in America and Brenda must have made a previous agreement with Rob that he could have the kids for the holiday because on November 20th in 2001, Brenda was expecting Rob to come pick up the kids at her home and take them to his house for the long weekend. This is already strange to me because previously she didn't want him anywhere near the kids or let alone have them overnight for a holiday weekend like Thanksgiving. What happens next is what Brenda tells police. Brenda says Rob came to pick up the kids for the long weekend. And when he arrived, she comes out of the garage door and asked him if he could come in and look at the furnace. As she said, the pilot light wasn't on and she wanted Rob to turn it on. She wanted Rob to light it because she didn't know how or she couldn't or something like that. Rob went into the garage and Brenda was also in the garage. As he was walking over to the furnace... She says, two men in black masks come running out of nowhere through the garage door and shot Rob and her, then ran away. That's when Brenda called 911. Brenda's 911 call, it sounded weird to me. Brenda told the operator that she has been shot and her husband's been shot. Notice how she puts herself first and So she's like, I've been shot. Like, I'm a victim here. Oh, and also my husband's been shot. And her voice in the call, it seems like she's acting or like she's trying to sound distraught. But it sounds like there's heavy undertones of like being very monotone. It's bad acting, if you ask me. Everyone acts differently in emergency situations. So this wasn't overly alarming at the time, but it was, to me, this is fishy. When the ambulance arrives, Rob was dead, shot twice, one shot to the left of his body and one shot to the right of his body, which does coincide with the two shooter story Brenda gave. And also two different different bullet casings were found at the scene, a 22 caliber pistol casing and a 16 gauge shotgun casing. So it was in fact highly probable there were two shooters. We've got uh, wounds on a left and a right side of the body. And we've got two different types of ammunition, which means two different guns. If it was one shooter, it would probably be one gun, one shot to the right or left side of the body. But what was off to investigators, what was really putting them off was that not only was Brenda's wound non-life-threatening, Rob had been shot to death, but her wound was 
not life-threatening at all. It had only passed through the fat on her upper arm. The children's bags, they were not packed to leave for the weekend. And these alleged gunmen, they hadn't robbed or stolen anything, ruling out a home invasion. A home invasion. So to police, they were like, uh, this seems like an assassination. Like right off the bat, they were like, okay, this is not adding up. Why would two masked men rush into the garage at the exact time Rob was lighting the furnace, at the exact time that he gets there, he's only there for a minute, shoot him to death, shoot Brenda, giving her a very non-life-threatening wound, and then run away with no gains. So this is why they think it was a hit, because their gains would have been getting paid to kill somebody. But Rob, he had no enemies, and the only person to gain from his death was Brenda. Because wait, there's more. The beneficiary on Rob's $800,000 life insurance policy wasn't his family member that he had changed it to. It wasn't his brother. After his death, police look at his insurance policy, who the beneficiary is, and it's Brenda. How is it Brenda? He changed it. He worked hard to change it to his brother. Okay, Brenda. Can you see how this looks? It looks bad, Brenda. It looks really, really bad. Police investigate the crime scene, and in the midst of all this chaos, a couple days later, Brenda's neighbors come home from holidaying. They weren't there when all this went down. They were on vacation. They get into their house, and they notice things were not as they had left them, particularly a shoe rack that was broken and hid under their bed. So somebody was in their closet. Somebody had been in their attic, actually, because... He had to go into their closet and then in their ceiling was the crawl space to get into the attic. And underneath that crawl space in their closet was a shoe rack. That shoe rack, all the shoes were all over the floor. They found the busted up shoe rack under their bed, which means somebody probably getting in or out of the attic weighed more than they thought that the shoe rack could handle, broke the shoe rack and then hit it. Hmm, who would that be? Why would someone be hiding in their attic? They had also found that there had been bullet casings left behind in the attic and in their bedroom, I think it was. They alerted police and police discover whoever shot Rob hid in the neighbor's home for probably about a day. They weren't sure how long, but it ends up being about a day. The 16-gauge shell was examined. So this was a spent shell um, casing that was found on uh, on a on the floor in the house and it was examined by a forensics team ballistics experts and it was concluded that it came from the same gun that had shot rob also police found unspent 22 caliber bullets in the attic where the shooters or shooter hid and they were exactly the same kind found at the crime scene next door. Police look for any signs of broken windows or kicked in or tampered locks and they find nothing. So whoever entered that home, they didn't use force, possibly had a key. Is it possible someone had gave the killer a key maybe? Who had a key? Wouldn't you know it, Brenda had a key to their home. They gave it to her while they went away on vacation for her to look after their house. Oh, Brenda. All the little, you might as well have made a breadcrumb trail that led right to you. In an article published by ABC News, it said that the police were in fact suspicious of Brenda, but they didn't have enough evidence to arrest her. Or to quote the article exactly, the police said, quote, but we did not have enough probable cause to place her under arrest, unquote. I would fucking hope they were suspicious of her. I mean, before Rob was before Rob was murdered, he went to them and said, here are two people who are trying to murder me. They have tried once and failed. And here's why they want me dead. And here's what they can gain from murdering me. And why don't you just go have a look at the insurance policy? Literally handing them a case, leaving forensic and investigations up to the police. Basically doing half their job. I'm surprised they couldn't hold Brenda and James on suspicion of murder, at least. You would think they could at least have that. The day after Rob's murder, Brenda was supposed to get in touch with police to set up a proper interview. But guess what? They never heard from her. 
This seems like something police should have made mandatory and not left it up to her to schedule. But hey, I'm not a cop. I don't know how it works. Do you let, you know, people you are suspicious of murder schedule their own interviews for their own convenience? I don't know. I guess they do. Did in this situation. I'd say Brenda and her boyfriend, James Pavat, are looking very suspect right now. So what do they do? What do they do to turn down the heat on themselves? Do they stay away from each other for a while? Does she take on the role of a grieving wife and attend Rob's funeral and cry to all his family and friends? Um, no. <laughs> no, they don't. Brenda and James they take off to Mexico on a vacation with her and Rob's two children in December. At the And the day that they cross into the Mexico border, the day they cross over into Mexico is the day of Rob's funeral. She doesn't even go. She's like, mm, I'm not going to go to my husband's funeral. I'm going to go to Mexico with my new boyfriend. So way to turn that heat down, Brenda. Also, I read that later on police search James Pavat's computer and they can see that his recent Google searches were about headed to Argentina because Argentina doesn't send people back for crimes so it's like a neutral country which I don't know I, I don't know if that's I don't know if Argentina is actually like that but he was looking that up so Rob is shot dead in his ex-wife's or divorcing wife's garage November 20th. Brenda James and her and Rob's kids take off to Mexico in December only weeks after the murder and miss Rob's funeral. Brenda never sets up her interview with the police. They find an insurance policy leaving $800,000 to Brenda if Rob dies, which Rob's family knows that he changed. They know the man who sold Rob the policy was and is actively sleeping with Rob's divorcing wife, wifey's divorcing Brenda. And police also know that Brenda openly told her friends she wished Rob was dead and that Rob's brake lines had previously been cut and he filed a report saying, I think they're going to murder me for my insurance money. So Brenda and James, they are far from smooth criminals. The only way they could have got away with this. And I'm not even sure if this would work because how would they get the money? But is if they would have went to a country that wouldn't send them back. But then how would they stay there? I don't know these things. While Brenda is gallivanting around with her boyfriend thinking she's so smart, police are forensically examining the signatures on Rob's insurance policy. And the examiner finds something fishy. Or should I say not fishy about Rob's last signatures signing Brenda as the beneficiary. So there was like a change in beneficiary form, changing it back to Brenda. And this signature looked odd because Rob, being a man of faith, being a man of the church, he would sign his name on business documents and when within his signature, he would incorporate the Christian fish symbol below it, almost blending in perfectly. Like you would really have to look to see that that fish is there. It almost, it blended in perfectly with his signature. It was a beautiful signature. And he did this as a sign of good faith. When the change of beneficiary papers were examined by a forensic handwriting expert and compared to Rob's known signatures, he found that the Christian fish symbol wasn't there. And also there were discrepancies in some of the letters and he concluded whoever signed Brenda as the beneficiary was not Rob and his signature was forged, meaning insurance fraud, meaning motive for murder. Brenda, Brenda, Police learn that Brenda and James are in Mexico. They catch wind of this and they issue a warrant for their arrest for the murder of Robert Andrew. Now the FBI was involved. This was turning into an international manhunt. I'm not sure what the deal is with jurisdiction, but they don't go to Mexico and arrest them. Instead, they wait for them to cross the border back into America. And in late February, they re-enter America and are arrested at the border after three months of being in Mexico. So they came back. My guess is they only had a 90-day holiday visa and they ended up not going for a country that won't exile them maybe Argentina. I don't know. I haven't looked that up. 
So what did police believe happened? Why are police arresting them for murder? What have police found? What is the puzzle that they have put together? Lord knows they had a lot of pieces to work with. So this is what police believed happened. On November 20th, the day Rob was shot to death, Rob went to pick up his kids for the long weekend. Or so he thought that's what he was doing. But Brenda had other plans. Oh, Brenda, she'd been making plans for a while. Her plan was when Rob pulled into the driveway, Brenda would come out through the garage door and ask him to come light the furnace. And him, being a nice man, would agree. And he did. If I were Rob, in this situation, I'd be saying, hell no. No, uh-uh. You can be as cold as you want all damn winter. I don't give a fuck. Remember you cut my brake lines? No, I am not going into a garage with you. It's probably lined with plastic. But no, he did go in. And he wanted to figure out this furnace situation for her. I'm telling you. Being nice can get you killed. Just look at Ted Bundy's murders. Anyways, when he entered the garage, James was hiding behind the van with the shotgun. Turns out, James, he has a background in being a sniper. So he's comfortable with guns. So they believe that James was hiding behind the van in the garage. And when Rob was, and then Rob entered the garage heading over to the furnace, James popped up from behind the van, shot him once from his hiding spot. When Rob fell to the ground, they believe Brenna took, Brenda took the second shot with the same gun. So James handed her the gun and was like, we're in this together, baby, or something lame like that. No, they didn't say that he said that. I'm throwing that in. Anyways, she, Brenda took the gun, same gun that he was shot the first time. And then at close range from about two feet, she shoots Rob. And they think that because the blood spatter found on her jeans was a mist of Rob's blood. And they do an investigation on how to get this exact mist, how close she would have to be. And it was within a two feet range. Then... Brenda shot herself in the arm and they think that because of the gunpowder residue that was on her clothing and around the wound, it was consistent with a very close range shot. James then fled the scene and took refuge in the neighbor's home that Brenda gave him the key for and he stayed there for a day while police investigated the crime scene. Police believe that the spent shell casing on the ground in the neighbor's home was accidentally dropped when James reloaded the gun when the people who lived there, when their son came in to drop off their mail and that James was preparing to possibly shoot and kill him if he was found in his hiding spot. In which case, that, that never happened, thankfully. The son put the mail on the table and then he left. And James was upstairs reloading that gun, gonna do whatever he had to do. But it, that's a terrible plan on James's part. Another part of their terrible plan. Because the police were next door. They were actively investigating a murder of somebody shot to death. And so if he would have shot this guy, he would have been immediately exposed and then they would have had another murder on their hand so he didn't really he didn't really think I don't know do these people ever think I don't think so so like so many parts of their plan it just doesn't make any sense but anyways that's what police believe was going to happen the bullets that were found in the attic were believed to have dropped out of James's pocket when he was crawling around up there and he didn't notice this man's attention to detail is shocking to say the least Police never found the shotgun, but what they did find is a record for a receipt for a 22 caliber pistol purchased by James Pavat with his credit card one month before the murder of Rob. The same gun used in the crime to shoot Brenda. Ah, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, these two. <sighs> James Pavat and Brenda Andrew were tried separately and both charged with conspiracy to commit first-degree murder and first-degree murder. Both Brenda and James were found guilty by jury and since Oklahoma has the death penalty, they were sentenced to death. James in 2003, 
Brenda in 2004. To this day, they have not been executed, but they do remain on death row. During the trial, it came out that not only was Brenda the beneficiary of Rob's life insurance policy, but she had actually taken one out on James as well. Brenda. 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 When does it stop, girl? Brenda. Brenda. (laughs) Oh, Brenda. I'm not sure if it was James who sold her this policy because I could imagine that would be incredibly awkward. Yes, hello, James, I'd like to take out an insurance, a life insurance policy. Okay, for who? Uh, for you, James Pavat. Oh, um, okay. (laughs) Knowing full well what she did to the last person she was a beneficiary of their life insurance policy. Yikes, awkward. So, I also don't know when she took out that policy on James. It could have been after he was sentenced to death because his trial was before hers. So, you know, maybe he was sentenced to death and she was like, ringy dingy dingy, he's for sure gonna die. I'm gonna take out a life insurance policy on him. Which is crazy that other people can take out life insurance policies on other people and that person, I'm pretty sure they don't even have to know, which is scary. Also encouraging murder, if you ask me. When reading about the trial, that's when I learned that James Pavat was a trained sniper. And that's when I was like, ooh, that's scary. More shockingly, I learned that his daughter testified in court stating that he told her that in 2001, Brenda had asked him to kill Rob and that uh, James had persuaded his daughter to make that phone call to Rob saying Brenda was in the hospital and she should rush over the day, the day that his brake lines were cut. Um, yeah, so yikes. At the time of the murder, Rob Andrew, he was 39 years old. So he died at the age of 39. Brenda Andrew was around 37. She was either 36 or 37. And James Pavat, he was a bit older than than Brenda. He was 50 years old. Brenda is apparently the only woman in Oklahoma on death row, which I found interesting. And I did not find an execution date scheduled for her. She is still on death row. She is now 59 years old and she will never get out of prison. James Pavat, he is now 71 years old and he is also still waiting to be executed. His death sentence was overturned in 2017, but then in 2019, it was reinstated. So he's been on a roller coaster ride in there. Last I checked, his execution was scheduled for July of 2024, only two years away. So he's probably sweating. I was actually shocked to learn that they were sentenced to death. I found the trial outlines, but it's all very confusing to me and it's long and it's dry. I will link it in my show notes so you can read through it. But like I said, it is long and it is very dryly written. Um, I'm not sure if dryly is a word, but you get what I'm saying. But I was shocked they got the death sentence because yes, it was terrible and it was sick and the amount of planning was disgusting it was premeditated to the maximum they had tried twice succeeded once you can't really succeed twice on the murder of the same person oh that'd be a good movie double jeopardy duh um and yeah i do believe they are very very bad people who deserve to be in prison for a very long long time but i see cases where the perpetrators get way less time and much more lenient punishments for committing horrendous vile acts like along with murder pedophilia rape torture abduction and it to me it just the, the court system it just seems so unjust like that a perfect example is the last case i covered the two-parter i did the james bulger case those two boys brutally murdered a child and there was strong evidence of sexual assault involved and they did no jail time. They were free to live their lives at 18 years old and one, maybe both are free today. I say maybe because one went back to prison years later, twice for child pornography, like a lot of it and possibly the worst that's ever been seen and he was still not getting much of a sentence. What was it, like a year and then four years or something for like 
outrageous, disgusting child pornography. And he was also posing online as as a, a woman, as a mother who abused her children and actively searching out other people that abused their children because he wanted videos and photos of it. Like, what the fuck? How come this guy is free? It's crazy. Why is he not on death row? Anyways, I guess that was in England. They don't have the death sentence. Then there's the other case I covered a while back, the Hitman, the Susan Walters episode, the woman who she had to kill in self-defense, the the man that had been hired to kill her. That man years earlier had contracted out torture and murder on his girlfriend, which happened and he only did 10 years and then he was back out on the streets and then he tried to murder Susan but she is a bad bitch alert. And if you listen to that episode, then you know how that worked out for him. Not good. He died. Her husband, who was after the insurance payout, he was after, he was the beneficiary on her insurance policy. He needed money. He wanted, they were going through a divorce. He wanted his wife dead. He hired that hitman. He helped plan it. And he only got 10 years in prison. He died before his release. But he only did 10 years in in prison for that. The only difference in that case was that her husband hired somebody to do the killing so he could actively distance himself from the crime instead of doing it himself. But the end result would have been the same. But his sentencing, 10 years. Then there's the Carla Hamoka and Paul Bernardo case, the Canadian married couple who drugged, raped, and murdered her own sister, as well as two other women. Carla Hamoka, she only did 12 years for the drugging, raping, and murder. And she is now free under a fake name, even has children of her own. And she played a huge role in those crimes, but only Paul Bernardo is still in prison. So we're thankful for that because that man is pure evil. I will cover that case one week. There's a lot to cover. So might be a two-parter as well. And with the prison system, I understand why the sentencing system works the way way that it does because every case has its own elements and different arguments and assessments of background, mental health, age, motive, all that stuff. And And then you go through, you know, and then then there's plea deals and there's good behavior and there's parole. And you just never know what somebody's going to get. It just seems to be so all over the, all over the board. I guess it depends on the jury and the judge and your lawyer. It's just so many moving parts in court cases. But before I wrap up this week's episode, I want to talk about a senseless, tragic murder that happened last week in Brisbane, Australia. It's possible you've seen the footage online. It's out there. You can see it censored. It was on the news channels. You can see it uncensored. And I actually watched the uncensored video. And it happened early Monday morning around 4 a.m. in Fortitude Valley, which is like, that's the party place of Brisbane. It's the hub. And it's the hub for the clubs and the bars and, and the pubs. And that's where everyone goes to party. So there's a lot of booze. There's a lot of violence that happens there. Last week, a fight got out of hand and a man was fatally stabbed in the neck. It happened within quarter of a second, blink of an eye, half a blink of an eye. It was so fast, I couldn't believe it. The men were arguing. There was three guys yelling and I think there was like another three guys yelling. So it was like kind of a three on three situation you think is going to play out here. And the one guy, he pulls out a knife and the other guys were kind of turning away. But then the guy with the knife, who was also turning away, he then turns back around and he starts yelling at those guys again. So they turn back around and they start yelling back. And for a minute, you actually think everyone is going to walk away. But then the guy with the knife and another guy, they look like they're going to fight because fists are being thrown around then the other guy walks then there's another guy who steps in and he starts walking aggressively towards the guy who is holding the knife and he basically in one fast movement the guy with the knife allegedly and I'm saying allegedly because I don't know the rules here there's been no conviction yet um so I'm just gonna say allegedly he allegedly stabs the guy in the neck nobody really knows it happened at the time that it happened because it was so fast and they keep yelling and they keep fighting and everyone kind of goes out of screen at the out of frame someone's recording on their phone and the guy that's been stabbed he's standing there holding his neck 
looking so shocked and he's holding his neck and blood is just pouring out at a rapid rate he lost so much blood so fast as the knife must have punctured an artery and within seconds he falls to the ground and even though the hospital was so close and paramedics arrived incredibly fast the injury was just too much to recover from and unfortunately the man died he was only 20 four years old and the guy who allegedly stabbed him was only 20 years old and he was brought into custody by police very very quickly police had him within no time at all so that guy he is being charged with murder but it's all just happened so recently i don't know the court date I don't know if there's been a conviction. I don't know the sentencing, when the sentencing is going to happen. I don't know anything. It's all just happened. This is a very fresh case. It was all being filmed on somebody's cell phone who was, uh, I don't know if they were just like somebody watching the fight or if they knew the guys. I have no idea. But he catches everything on video, everything. It was just so senseless. And it didn't need to happen at all. The 24-year-old male, he leaves behind a one-year-old daughter, which is just devastating. I will link an article for more information on this in my show notes. And also in that article is the GoFundMe information for the victim's family if you want to donate. If you watch the video, just fair warning, it is just shocking how quickly a life can end. It is, wow. Uh, one second he's walking towards a man and then literally in the blink of an eye he's got a life-ending injury and it was just so he just yeah so let this be a warning and a reminder if someone is trying to fight with you or your friends on a night out or wherever just walk away nobody likes a fight if you're doing it to impress women i'm not saying that this is what this fight was about actually i have no idea what they were fighting about but guys Women don't like that. So like Patrick Swayze says in Roadhouse, nobody wins a fight. Meaning just being involved in violence mean you've already lost. Okay, I'm going to end this week's episode there. Don't forget to head on over to the Hell No Instagram page to comment what your job would be if you lived in Stars Hollow. Remember I asked that at the beginning of this episode? While you're at it, please leave a review on Apple Podcast. And if you feel like it, if you think I deserve it, please give me a five-star rating. That would be so nice. Other people might help other people find my podcast by pushing it to the top of their list. I don't know how the algorithm rhythm works same with spotify there's a follow and rate option on there i've got one thing to say to brenda andrew and james pavat hell no thanks for listening see you next week bye